This is Decoding Learning Differences with Kimberlyn Lavelle, and this episode is The Roots of Behavior Difficulties with Michelle Shivak. I had a ton of fun talking with her, and I kind of geeked out a bit. We definitely are going to have to do a part two, and we are scheduling that, so watch for that coming soon because we want to get a little deeper into some of these topics. Enjoy part one. Michelle, thank you so much for being on the podcast today. Um, I would like you to go ahead and introduce yourself to everyone so that they know who you are, what you do. Thank you. Uh, so I'm Michelle Schulbach. I'm a board certified behavior analyst. I'm a mama. I'm a parent coach. And I've had the fortunate uh, opportunity for the last 24 years to work in the field of supporting neurotypical and neurodivergent children and their families. Uh, I've worked for profit, for nonprofit. I've run uh, integrated preschool programs and um, supervised other behavior analysts working with neurodivergent children. So I've done many parts in my field, but in the last, I would say five years, I've really come into a blossoming private practice. And then I work as part of a pediatric practice we're here locally, I'm in British Columbia on the West Coast, and I am part of a collaborative model of uh, medical practice for children and families. So it's pretty amazing and unique up here. There's pediatricians, clinical counselors, behavior analysts, occupational therapists, nurse practitioners, dietitians, and we all work as a team for families. Wow, that sounds so amazing. I love that. So that's where I wear, that's where I split my time between the practice and my, and then my own private practice and raising a small human and all the juggles of that as well. Yay for small humans. Uh, okay, I wanted to show our audience your visual. So some of our audience is just going to be listening. Perfect. But so we'll kind of explain it a little bit, but at the same time, um, I should say, explain the visual in terms of what, what it is so that they can listen and understand it, but then also explain it in terms of, just explain it. I can do what that. I mean. <laughs> so I guess part of, I should preface that part of my, a big part of my practice now is really uh, bridging a better understanding for those complex behaviors children are exhibiting. And usually when I'm speaking to that, I'm speaking to preschool age all the way up into teen years. And I'm trying to help both educators and parents bridge that understanding for what's really going on for kids. And are we setting realistic expectations for children? And is that in some ways resulting in these problem behaviors? And it's sort of why you and I had this conversation to start about, you know, extrinsic motivation and all these behavioral change tools that as a behavior scientist, you know, and an analyst, I believe there's value in them when they're done well and we understand the purpose behind them. So this is what drew me to create this visual. And I always give credit where credit is due. So the visual and the idea behind it really stems from um, skills-based teaching or training that's been coined by uh, a behavior analyst in my field, Dr. Greg Hanley. And it just is a beautiful framework. So I took his idea and I've kind of morphed it to be beyond 
um, behavior skills, skills-based training or teaching to just really speak to complex behaviors. So many families will think, so if you're just listening versus seeing the visual, this idea of um, the iceberg, right? So the iceberg is all the behaviors you see a child exhibiting are above the water and what's really kind of percolating and going on for them is under the water, right? Hidden. So that idea for me is rooted in this idea of a tree. And so everything about a tree and the growth of the tree. So if you think about a tree being the skills and behaviors that a child exhibits, behaviors don't have to be, uh, in my world, maladaptive. Eating's a behavior, reading a book's a behavior, talking to you is a behavior, right? So it's just the things we do every day. And so the root is what's happening that we don't see. Um, again, we sometimes just look at kids and we make assumptions about behavior because of what we see. And we don't take the time to also dig deep. Uh, what is at the root? So this is where I've got a visual that says, you know, what do they value, think, and tell themselves? And I think that speaks a lot to where we really need to start with children who are exhibiting complex behaviors. So before a diagnosis, before we start labeling kids, that doesn't matter to me. In some respects it will, and it serves its purpose, but I just wanna know what's happening. And so that really has to start with what do children value, whether they're in school or their home, what are the things that are important to them? People, items, activities, times of day. Um, I always love it when I see a kid in school who's having challenging behavior and, and we dive deep into values. I like recess. Anything else? I like recess. I'm like, okay. <laughs> This is what's important to you about school. But it tells me a lot about a child. So does the private thoughts a child has about themselves. Do they uh, value themselves? Do they see themselves in a positive light? Or are they struggling with poor self-worth? Because that manifests itself in how we engage, how we socialize, how we participate. And what are they telling themselves? Am I good enough? Am I fast enough? Am I strong enough? Am I smart enough? Am I worthy enough, right? So it's not just, um, sometimes the iceberg is like the diagnostic iceberg, I sometimes call it. I don't know if you've seen that, Kimberlyn, where it's like, you know, all the possible diagnoses a child could have, that's what's under the surface. I like to go deeper, right? Yeah. So that's sort of the roots for me. I don't know, do you want me to just kind of talk through it or do you want to talk to me while I go through it? Right now, keep going. I'll interrupt if, uh, if okay. I have a question for you. But yeah, right now, I just want to kind of walk through what we're seeing here. And, um, and for those listening, just that, so right now you kind of talked about those roots. Yes. Um, and it's that, what do they value, think, and tell themselves? Yeah, right? So that to me is where we should start when we're encountering a child who's exhibiting complex behavior. It's not just, sure, there's some very immediate things and Kimberly, you've talked about them before. I've listened to many of your podcasts. I mean, there are immediate things we can do to alter environment and those sorts of things. But if we really wanna have lasting change, and positive impact for kids, then we really need to understand what's at the root. And then 
what happens is we're often sitting in the branches with children. When I meet parents and I meet educators, they're in the branches. They're in these beautiful pink branches. My image is these, I like pinks and purples, so everything's pink and purple. But they sit in the branches, but they're really frustrated in the branches because they're they, they've got these big, they've set the bar beautifully high without understanding what's going on in the root. So if we're not nourishing the roots, then we will see leaves that whittle. Like we're going to see a plant, a tree that's not thriving. And that's usually where I meet people. I meet people at the top of the tree and I have to kind of help them come back down to the, to the start to where the trunk of the tree starts talking about core skills to consider. So before we start asking why my child won't transition with me all the time, why my child isn't doing their homework, why is that student you know, um, disruptive in class, calling out in class, why am I hearing my teacher say that my child's you know, causing problems on the playground? Those are all branches, right? Those are all what's going on up there we have to start to really look at core skills. And that to me is for all ages. And I'll give you some ideas and, and scenarios I've seen in practice, but I'm talking about the ability children have to communicate needs. I can't tell you the number of children I have met in practice who are five, six, seven, eight, nine, and still, well, they're going to school on their own, they have friends, they participate. They actually can't talk to me about their, their most basic needs on an emotional and social level, I mean, right? I'm sure they can tell me if they're hungry or they, they're tired, but there aren't, they aren't able to articulate their needs. And they actually, so this speaks to the next one, social emotional regulation. Many of them haven't experienced or been nurtured and supported to be okay with being mad and sad. So they don't know what to do with those emotions. So they, they kind of come out in different ways, right? Um, and then this tolerance to delay doesn't happen for them, right? So tolerance to delay is a big one for me. Have children acquired the ability to wait for things they desire? to be able to trust the adults in their circle that when someone says it's not available right now, but here's when it's available, that that's actually gonna happen. And a lot of kids haven't acquired or fully mastered that tolerance to delay. So if you think about it, if you want your ch a child, an eight-year-old not to be disruptive in class or to play in a calm manner with their sibling, but they can't articulate in pro-social ways, hey, you took my toy, I want it back. Or, excuse me, teacher, I can't follow the lesson. I don't know what you're talking about, right? That's what I mean by um, ability to communicate needs. Needs are different based on age and development, but we have to make sure kids can communicate their needs, right? Have alternative ways, breaks, um, you know, time away, them asking for it, right? Like I need space from this. I need alone time. That's a big one with parents, right? Supporting kids to say, parent, I need space from you because you're drilling me right now and I can't do it, right? So that's what I'm talking. I'm, I'm talking about really like deep level communication of needs, um, deep level social emotional regulation. Um, we 
I think up here in Canada, at least, we have um, seen a trend where there's this like universal zones of regulation. Like that is must be the one and only curriculum all children should learn in. And I'm sure you've seen this as an educate with an education background that you have, Kimberlyn. That's not, it's not a one size fits all, right? So you've got kids who haven't actually learned those regulatory skills in home or in school because they're they're not connecting to the curriculum being presented or they don't understand the curriculum. So part of this, it it seems like one of the, the struggles to be able to communicate your needs is that you have to be able to recognize your needs. Yes. And I know a lot of, like, they don't realize what they need. But that's, like, one thing I'm constantly working on with, like, my kids is they're starting to melt down. I was like, oh, sounds like you're really hungry. And it's hard. It's hard to have, you know, um, it, you get more frustrated when you're hungry. I, I hear you. And, like, just reflecting that so that they start recognizing. And yesterday it was, like, my four-year-old is like, I'm too tired and hungry for this. And it was, it was like, you know, upset about something else, but recognized I am tired and I am hungry. And that is really my problem. Yeah. I need that need met first. Yeah. Yeah. Sleep and rest, sleep and uh, sleep and food. And then let's talk about my other needs. But here's the interesting thing. And I think it's a missed part I see a lot in especially school-aged children, because it's where we notice this the most, which is um, interoceptive skills. Sometimes people call this your eighth sense. And so it's this idea of one's ability to internally recognize those cues your body's giving you. And in fact, I've met many children who on a very superficial level can tell you what they're supposed to do, what mad looks like and what they're supposed to do when they're mad, what, you know, yeah. um, frustrated looks like, what there's, but they actually can't tell you. And those often are neuro, many, not all, neurodivergent children. So that could be children with sensory processing, autism, um, ADHD. There's a variety of, of um, diagnostic lens, you know, we look at, but children in general who really, we've missed that. We've told them to be mindful. We've told them to meditate, but they're like, dang, I don't really understand what, like, what does this feel? What's, what am I supposed to be feeling inside? I meditate, so I understand that, but it's really um, interesting if you take the time to actually see can kids articulate, can they squeeze their hands tight, tight, tight and release and describe the sensations they feel in their fingers. And there's kids who can't. So here we are thinking we've checked all the social emotional boxes. Yeah. But they're not going to acquire social emotional skills the same way you or I might. Right. Well, that makes me think about some of the students we've had who the speech pathologist will tell us they know what to do. You know, we've run through all these scenarios. We acted out. They know exactly what to do when they see this scene, when this person says this, they know all the appropriate things. There's nothing, there's nothing more I can work on in a speech setting. Mm -hmm. Right. But then out on the playground, they don't use any of the skills that they're saying that they're demonstrating in a very structured setting. Yeah. So yeah, I, I definitely uh, see that, that there's a, a disconnect there, a difficulty. 
And, and here's the interesting thing. And I'll always, you know, I, because I work with neurotypical and neurodivergent children, I kind of ping pong back and forth of it. But I, and stories I'm sharing, I should always preface, are share stories that the children that I work with have consented. And there's nothing, you won't know who it is, but they know I'm sharing the story and they've said, yeah, tell the story. So I've known a young man in his teens for years and he has autism. Um, Autism, I don't use high or low functioning, but autism under the lens that many wouldn't know he has autism. And he's very good masker, so he can hide things really well. And for many years, we thought he had the fundamentals of interceptive skills. And here he is in his teens now, really actually experiencing some of the most complex behaviors and having a hard time. And when we dove deep and asked questions like, well, how do you know when you need to go to the bathroom? And he said, well, and he looked at me as if this is the rule everybody adheres to. Well, I should go to the bathroom every two to three hours, unless of course I drink some bottled water. And for every bottle of extra water I drink, then I should go an hour sooner. And I was like, do you actually feel the need to go? No, he didn't like realize that wow. that was, right? And as we dove deeper, we realized he, and it was because he said, Michelle, Everybody keeps telling me I need to calm down before I get explosive, but I don't know I'm getting explosive. Like he physiologically didn't see those cues. And I could behavior skills teach him till the cows come home. Right. Right. Like, right. so, you know, your speech pathologist is like, I've done behavior skills teaching, you know, I've taught them the skill, we've rehearsed the skill, we've, they know the skill, but they don't know the skill. Right. 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 Yeah, interesting. Yeah. Right. So I, I think it's taught me to never assume, never ever assume that kids, you really have to dive deep to make sure um, unique learners really, and children in general, really have it. That's why I think any sort of standardized curriculum for teaching social emotional is a little risky because it's not going to meet the needs. It's just like a math curriculum is not for every kid. Well, that's what I was going to say a standardized curriculum for everybody in any anything you're trying to teach, if, if everyone's getting the same thing, there's only a few people who are getting anything. You exactly. Know? Yeah. So, yeah. Right. Um, I don't, do you guys know universal design for learning? Is that, yeah. yeah, I did my master's thesis on it. So like, I'm big about the whole, you know, who are you teaching to? Another conversation. <laughs> <laughs> but here's the other piece that I think is important. So here we are, we're working our way up this idea of the trunk, right? So when I meet people in the branches, I say, we got to start in the roots. And now we're sort of re, ref, we're reflecting on those core skills to consider, right? Does that child have the ability to wait, right? So now we're talking a lot about our ADHD and for a lack of a better term, I really don't like it, executive dysfunction kids, right? Like kids who maybe don't fit a, um, a DSM diagnostic criteria, but their executive function, their impulsivity is really working against them. To tolerance to delay is really hard. Can they wait? Can they wait for something they want? Can they transition past and still wait for something they want? Right? Like, this is hard stuff. So here's where it gets interesting. And it's why I put on the other side of the tree in bold, a calm, relaxed and engaged child is a child ready to learn. So whether you're at home with your child or your child's in a school setting, I think we're too quick to push the teaching 
on dysregulated children. And so I'll go to, to school-based teams all the time and say, put the worksheets down. Like, don't, you might spend the next three months working towards a child consistently reaching a state of calm, relaxed and engaged. And ditto for parents, right? Like maybe you want your kid to clean their room. Maybe you want your child to come home from school and start their homework and follow a certain level of things that you value. But if they're dysregulated and they don't have time to decompress, then you're not meeting them at their best. You're meeting them kind of the way I describe it to parents. Um, working parents can relate to this. You know, the idea that sometimes you pull into your garage and you're like, oh, I don't even know if I want to go in the house, right? Like maybe I'll just stay in the car a little bit longer. And you open your door and you're met. You are still here and you're met with like 800 demands. A spouse who's asking you five, what's for dinner? Um, Johnny's asking for this and Sarah wants this and Sarah and Johnny are asking, right? Like, and you kind of feel this, explosiveness in yourself because you can't perform the tasks the environment is asking of you because you are not calm, relaxed, and engaged. Right? Yeah, absolutely. So that's sort of, I say that to parents and educators, you can't move to the branches. We can't teach unless we have children in a state where they're um, of the mindset uh, externally and in, internally ready for it, right? Um, and so here's where, and I'll always sprinkle little bits of motivation. <laughs> here's where motivation, extrinsic reinforcement is incorrectly used. We don't yeah. understand what's going on under the roots. Right. We've not addressed core skills, but we want a kid to do the things we want them to do. Yeah, that's what, that's what I was thinking about when you're talking about that is yeah. like, they, they look at, oh, I really want them to do, you know, do their homework when, every day when they first come in. So yeah. here's the sticker chart. And every time you do a homework, we're going to get a sticker. And after five stickers, we're going to go to Target. And yeah. So that's, and that's where I see extrinsic motivation used a lot where they do, they focus on those branches of this is what I want the child to do, perform. Yeah. And not really meeting the kid where they're at. Okay, so, so talk to us more about that. So, so here you've got this idea now, right? Where you, you want children, and we'll come to it. I'll sprinkle it a little later, like how I might bring in extrinsic um, reinforcement sometimes, because there's, I believe there is a place for it. Um, as a behavior analyst, I definitely see value when it's used correctly, right? And for cer certain uh, neurodivergent learners, it's a necessity. It really is a, a beneficial tool for them. But you have to fundamentally know what a child values. You have to fundamentally know where their mindset is at, right? And especially as they get older, you'll want them to collaborate. You'll want them to be part of the planning, right, of the branches. But we're not gonna do any teaching around anything we, the adults, want um, unless we have a full understanding for everything going on in the roots in the trunk. You just can't, you can't. And, and so maybe this is where parents are like, well, I've tried, you know, I used that sticker chart. It worked for two days and then it didn't. Well, it's not that the sticker chart worked. It's that the kid's like, well, that sounds kind of interesting. I'll give that a go. And then they're like, 
it's it's not coming to me fast enough and I don't care as much as you think I do about it so man yeah Right. And then that's where it's too hard to maintain yeah. the energy level for it. And I, I can't, so I just must be the terrible person and right. I give up and I'm I worthless. feel terrible about myself yeah. and I give up. I'm worthless. I don't understand this. I can't do this. And so then guess what, guess what parents do and teachers alike sometimes. Then we throw in a good sprinkle of threats. Well, that token economy is not working anymore. So how about I take away the things I think you like? Or, right, so sometimes, sadly, it's where we still see children losing recess, right? Like, hurts my soul, right? It's a necessity to keeping them calm, calm relaxed, and engaged. Don't take it away. Um, and, and then kids at home who are now, they're like, I, I, I can't win. So now they're operating no longer from this um, rational problem-solving prefrontal cortex, they're back, in the, they're, they're at the stem of their brain and they are operating off a of fight, flight, or freeze. What are you talking about? You just talking about? Right, so now we have like a super explosive kid, super fun. So it, it, it's why I start to talk about our, uh, I titled the next branch as our expectations, right? Um, are they developmentally fitting? Um, are, that's a typo, so apologies, I will fix that. R-A-R-E, <laughs> um, they developmentally fitting. This is a big one, right? Um, whether you're a neurodivergent learner or you're a young child, are we asking of a kid something that they shouldn't do? A very core, simple example is sharing. You know, sharing is an, is an ask adults put on three and four-year-olds, like it's something they come out of the womb able to do. Yeah. But in fact, it's like some people say four. I think the literature really supports almost like five, six. Right. So um, I think we have to really look at are we asking kids to do something that they can do, um, whether it's regulating in a classroom, um, following multi step instructions, uh, executive dysfunction kids. So not even if you have ADHD or autism. Um, but children in general who are struggling, here's an interesting one that can happen. I'll hear parents of school-age kids, so you know, older kids say to me, I'm really confused and frustrated because I think my kid can do this because they can follow multi-step instructions some of the time, but not all of the time. And then I say to them, tell me a little bit more about that. And so guess what we find out? One of the traits of a child with ADHD is that they can be hyper-focused on something they value. So when they value it, they can just like dive deep at the expense of remembering to eat, to toilet, to do anything else around them, but they can perform that task with such precision and focus because they value it, because they value it, right? That's why understanding values is so important. But with anything else, you really see the dysfunction. You see and I hate that word, but it's the word. So, but you can see the lagging skills. You can see what that child's struggling with. So um, have they been taught the prerequisite skills that they need to be taught first? Like, have we actually systematically made sure that before a child shares, they understand turn-taking, that they have the perspective-taking, the tolerance delay? Like, can do they have the skills necessary for the things we're asking of them? And a lot, not all, but a lot of the time, in fact, there's prerequisite skills that have not yet been met, right? 
before we ask them to clean their room, which is often a parental big ask, can they stay focused enough to even do one or two steps of that task right? instead of asking them to do five steps at once? And, and even all of those individual steps right. have they been taught each of those individual pieces of even just looking around the room to see what needs to get picked up is its own task, right? Like I can look around and see, oh, this and this and this all need to get put away. And, and, you know, but there's kids, um, especially really young, they, they see one thing, they put it away and they're done. I cleaned my room. Mm -hmm. What about everything else? I cleaned what I valued. I cleaned my values. I don't care if my pajamas are on the floor. I'll sleep without them. and, And listen, the thing is, when I talk about values, I'm not saying kids are right. But if we can understand their values, it's the, the best way I can describe it. We can speak their love language. Yeah. If I understand what a child values, then they're going to be heard when I'm trying to explain things they don't value. Because they're feeling heard, right? Like you hear me that I tell you that really I only value my Pokemon stuffies and that's it. And my cards, see how they're like neatly organized over there. They're like super special to me. And I do, I see the attention to detail you're putting in them. So, you know, I'm, I'm using really natural ways to acknowledge some people call that praise. Uh, the, the effort that, that, but, they're, right. But it, it is, there is that distinction of the abundant praise for that to me, a lot of time, I, my issue with praise is when it's like condescending. Oh. You know, it's like, oh, great job for doing that. Oh, thank you so much. And like the assumption that they wouldn't have done it without the praise. And like, you know, there, there's a problem with some kinds of praise. But yes, acknowledgement of what, what you're seeing and valuing and a genuine appreciation for it, I think is, is so it's so powerful. And that's, you know, it's a connecting thing too. You're, you're building that relationship. You're seeing them for who they are. There's anyone who's feels seen mm-hmm. is going to connect with you a lot more than, oh, you just want me to do the X, Y, Z. You don't care about me as a person. So I think that's huge. Right. And I think it speaks to expectations, right? Because again, we set these expectations that maybe are unrealistic and we put this value on them, right? Yeah. I'll tell you how shiny special you are if you can do this thing that you're not able to consistently do. So now you feel less than because I, I've taught you to feel that way without realizing it. I've kind of conditioned you to think that way. So I, when I talk about praise, I talk a lot about, um, especially as children are young and growing, I, I'm really not a good job person. I'm, you know, if, if a child figures out how to kick a ball, guess what's the most natural form of praise? When they kick it to you, you kick it back. It's just like built into the activity. Um, a child drops the car down the ramp for the first time and you've been teaching them that, give them back the car so they can do it again. <laughs> like it doesn't have to be artificial in the way of like, yay. Right. And as children get older um, and there's research to back this, I'm not inventing this stuff up, uh, actually reinforcing and providing acknowledgement to the process versus the outcome right. is better lasting. Right. Do you know there's a really cool, there's a study. Do you know the one they did with children? I can't think of the title, but I can always get it. Do you know which one I'm talking about? Where they I, had kids in a room, they had kids, they put two groups of kids 
and it's videoed so you can see the video versions of this it's really neat and they videoed a group of kids who were given really easy tasks and praised for completing the tasks and they were given other children um, tasks that were harder who were praised for their effort yeah that's um oh now i'm blanking on her name i know but with the, the mindset growth mindset thank you yes um yeah but it's it's a great example of how <laughs> for people who don't it's going to come to me before we're i know <laughs> me when I don't remember these things. But the reason I bring it up is because that's sort of how we set our expectations. And, you know, a child who's struggling, the study they found, right, the results of that study were um, the children who were given the choice between do you want to do easy tasks or harder tasks, they picked the harder tasks, right? Because there they they had learned to like try and work through things that were hard it wasn't about the outcome right? right so why do i talk about this because when we're teaching in the branches it's not always about you're cutting out i've lost your sound yeah i don't know what happened okay you're back <laughs> hi i was just saying people can't um we would we sometimes rely too much on the, the outcome in the branches, right? We don't give enough um, acknowledgement. Let's use that word instead of praise. We don't yeah. give acknowledgement to the effort a child is putting into something that, you know, if it's social, right? Like, wow, man, there are a lot of kids out there today. And I saw you go over and check out the soccer field. Like, how was that for you? It was hard, but I did it. How that make you feel? I'm glad I tried, but I won't tomorrow. Cool. <laughs> Not like, yay, here's a star. Right. Um, right. Um, well, and that and that's reinforcing that intrinsic. How are you feeling about it? What do you see? And that's the big thing that um, you know. Anytime I was like in the classroom, required kind of to create a behavior, something for a child, it was always you know, like they had the slasher. There was all these um, check in, check out. Here's the skill, the goals that we're working on for today. How did you do at these different points in the day? So the kid comes up to me here, you have to fill this out. It's like, okay, so how did you do on this? Like, tell me what, what happened. I'm not giving you the number. Like, it's not, it's not from me. It's you're reflecting on your own behavior, your own, whatever your, these are your goals. Like, I'll help you fill it out, but it's not about me. It's about, about you and what's happening for you. Mm -hmm. um, because when it's just like the teacher just is filling it out and handing it back to the kid, it, it doesn't feel like they had any control over the number. Right. So anyway. So, and, but I think, right. Like, so our expectations, and I mean, this is a whole other conversation, right. But for parents listening, so can you imagine you have your child in school all day where they haven't maybe fundamentally mastered all the trunk skills and maybe the expectations are a bit above even the bar we want to set for them. They don't, they don't have those prerequisite skills. And then we're trying to teach when they're not calm, relaxed and engaged, but they're kind of keeping it together at school. It's like the soda can analogy. I talk about a lot with groups, right? So like they're super stressed at school, all these demands, they're not really following a lot. And then they come home to you and they're like, Shh explosive, disruptive. And when we do those deep dives of what's going on at home, in fact, it's not that the parents, if there's very little we're gonna augment about what's happening at home. We're gonna deep dive to the roots 
at school, right? Like yeah. what's going on for that kid at school. And that's not a criticism of school. That's not a criticism of educators. I think educators are um, the most undervalued and underpaid profession out there when you think about the demands in their classroom and what's being asked of them, right? Um, but it, it's stressful for kids. So, you know, last and certainly not least, then we support skill building and learning, right? It's like the branches, but there's a lot that needs to be in place first before we really wanna make sure we are fundamentally supporting kids um, to maximize, to set that bar at a place that they see themselves reaching, right? Um, I don't know. That's sort of the summary. And then okay. I, you know, obviously I, but I use it a lot with schools and at homes to help people understand the roots to the branches of complex behavior. Cause everybody's in the branches when I meet them. Right. It's like, let's come back down. Right. Yeah. Going back to, to that example that you're talking about, because it's something I hear about all the time. Um, so there, you know, the parents are constantly telling us, I'm so glad they behave well at school, but the second they get home, they explode. I mean, there was one where the kid was literally picked up in the minivan and had was destroying like the yeah. minivan, like taking like, but perfectly behaved at school. Yeah. Never a problem at all. Perfectly behaved. So it was like this, you know, it was shocking to us when we're hearing it, like, that there's any issues the second they get picked up, but the second they're picked up, just explosive. Um, so what is your recommendation that the schools need to be doing about it? Or ah, that's a hard, so there's a term for it. There's a psychological term for it. I've spoken to many parent groups about this and schools, but it's called after school restraint collapse. Have you heard this term? Yeah, okay. So really fundamentally, for a variety of reasons, children at school are doing, are masking. They are experiencing stress. They are experiencing states of angst or anxiety and they are hiding it, right? So they are hiding what's going on for them at school. Um, they are frustrated. And so then this kind of like, I know we're not gonna get into it as much as is where we wanted to start today, which is like oppositional defiance, my ODD, my ODD. <laughs> There's so many things I want to ask you. But um, it's, it's, it's why, so here's, then I'm going to talk about attachment and connection, right? It's a beautiful thing. So kids are keeping it together in school. They're holding it together. They're not understanding the curriculum. Maybe they're having a hard time socially, maybe all of the above. Maybe they have some sensory stuff going on, like so many reasons. They get to their safe person and guess what their safe person does? How was your day, dear? At the backseat of the car. And then it's like projectile items are being thrown at them while they're beating on their sibling in a car seat because that's a demand. So I tell parents one of the most efficient and effective things they can do if they have a child who's engaging in those er eruptive um, explosive behavior after school is say nothing, say nothing, follow their lead and make sure when they get home, they have a safe, secure place to de-escalate. So if there's siblings, that might mean they have like a room they can go chill in. Guess what? They, they can watch something on the iPad or play video games. We have to find out what they value that helps them calm, but give them some chill time before we're like, do you have homework? Give me your lunchbox. Like, did you hand in your slip to the teacher today? Because those are all demands, right? 
rapid firing and they just sent that you get all of the dysregulation they've been experiencing all day. You don't just get, where's your slip? Oh man, I forgot. You get every moment that child felt that way in their day. And so that's why parents are a bit perplexed. And it's, this is, you know, you asked me about school, what should schools do? There's a lot of shame parents feel when schools are like, we don't see this at school. Parents feel like, is it me? Did, am I doing something? Right. So there, there's, it's a, what can schools do? I encourage schools to listen, listen yeah. to parents when they are telling you what they are experiencing in the home or in the car. <laughs> um, listen, because there's a reason. And so then we have to kind of do a bit of that lagging skill, uh, Ross green inventory, right? If we don't have, there might be some clear answers, right? They, maybe they have a social emotional diagnostic diagnosis. Maybe they have autism. Maybe they have ADHD. Maybe they have ODD, right? Maybe there's, maybe they have dyslexia. Maybe they have a learning disability. Like there's so many reasons that could speak to why, um, but we know that within the community of um, autism, girls in particular, and this also kind of starts to come out with ADHD and girls, they are our master maskers. They will hide every stress in their day, but man, are they experiencing it at a, at a really exponential rate. And then I talked to parents about, um, we're still post pandemic. I don't know, what do you wanna call it? But we're not back and you're in America. Listen, you guys, I can't even begin as a Canadian and a mama of a child who goes to a school in Canada, what privilege I have. The stress educators and children are under just walking in the door to a building like shivers, right? Like it's, it's, it's not the carefree environment. You know, I'm 46. It's not the environment when I went to elementary school. It just isn't. Yeah, people could walk into my elementary school. Nobody checked in. No one needed ID. Doors weren't locked. You know, you didn't get buzzed in. You weren't, children didn't have to have um, drills for guns, drill, you know, um, for a variety of things. Um, you know, up here, our high school teachers have to learn how to administer Narcan. You know, like stress, being an educator is tremendously stressful. I can't even begin. So that's like a high level stress for kids. So I bring up the pandemic because it was like masks, no masks. Did you just cough? Do you have COVID? Do you? So it's like the layers of stress just to walk in a school door. I'm surprised not every kid's explosive when they're done at the end of the day. Yeah. Well, in some I see, I'm here, I've heard also reports of, you know, the kid looks perfectly happy, calm, relaxed yeah. while they're at school. But the parents will talk about how at home they seem very depressed. Yeah. Or they're they're talking about stomach aches every morning and they don't want to go to school and they're crying all the time. And it's like, but you as soon as they're on campus, they look fine, right? They look happy, they look calm, they answer the questions, they do their work. So so that's where I'm wondering, like to me so what we've been doing um is what i what i keep pushing is you know tell us what's going on and mm -hmm. and what 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 we need to look at what we can do to to eliminate that so like 
what is it that's causing that stress? And is there something at school that we can do to reduce it? You know, like in, in the one case, it was a kid who was just the academic demands at school were way above her ability level. Mm -hmm. And she looked like she was okay with it at school, but she was crying every night, stomach pains every morning, literally throwing up sometimes. And I was like, okay, so I'm not sure that what we're asking of her is appropriate because it's causing major emotional issues, which is going to prevent her from even learning, like, which just makes her fall further behind and feel even worse about herself. Like we're in a bad cycle right now. So we need to change some things. Um, so yeah, I was, I wasn't sure if you have any other thoughts on any of any of that, that the schools can be doing. Yeah. So, okay. (laughs) Maybe met with unpopular, um, it's not always a popular opinion, but some of the social emotional curriculums actually cause more masking and stress for children. So um, I won't name them by name, but um, I think there's amazing parts to many curriculums, but I think we have to be careful that if we're teaching children that their traits are bad characters or bad guys, you know, that can cause tremendous stress and anxiety for children. Children, so what can we do? If educators know, so now I'm gonna speak to neurodivergent, we know this child has ADHD or autism, or let's make sure they understand their diagnosis and their traits, okay? Doesn't have to be this whole superpower thing, but let's make sure that children truly understand, hey man, if you need to stand and dance at the back of the room to listen, Let's, let's support you to do that. Let's make sure. So for neurodivergent children, one of the best things education teams can do, and I speak to this a lot with education teams, is let's make sure that children, we understand what children value. Do they understand their diagnoses? And have they collaborated on the strategies? All walk into classrooms that have some of the most amazing strategies for children with ADHD. And I remember meeting a girl once and I'll never forget this. She's so cool. And I said, what's going on for you? Like we had, we connected and had many meetings. And she said, Michelle, listen, if I go to the back of the room and use that table, I stand out more and I'm struggling with the girls. And she can use the word struggle, but essentially that's what she's saying. Like she's having a hard time connecting with the girls. She values female friendships in her class. So now I know her values. So how will freeze over before she'll access a tool she knows would help her. So we had a conversation with her teacher and her, let's collaborate. What can, what do you need? Well, sometimes I need to break, but I'm afraid I'm going to miss something and get in trouble. Teacher, you won't get in trouble. Um, Here's what I'll do to help you. And then she created a system with her teacher. So she could get a need met but we knew what she valued. Like, so right. So it's a big ask of education teams because we're, we're, I'm proposing that you be more individualized in your strategies, right. That you, that you talk to kids who don't seem to be utilizing the strategies as effectively ooh, <laughs> uh, as they used to. So I, I think that that's an important piece, but I'll always go back to listen to the parents. There's something going on and sometimes just observing the nuances of children's, um, you know, avoidance uh, behavior or how they're being received by their peers can tell us a lot. Um, again, that's superficial, but it can guide the discussions around the roots, right? 
hmm, you say you're fine outside, but I, I just see you butterflying around everyone. I don't really see you socially connecting with kids outside, um, but you seem happy. Masking's a thing. It's, there's a lot of literature to support it. Um, I speak a lot to schools about masking. Um, we, see it, we see the detriment that happens in intermediate grades. So stress for kids in school, we usually see the onset of social stress uh, by grade four, usually, because the nuances of peer relationships change. So you can't just blend. Um, girls are talking more, they're gossiping, they're engaging in higher level social in interactions. And if you are lagging behind in that area, you're gonna be noticed. Um, the demands academically shift in grade four, right? There's bigger asks of students. So we usually will see quite a big shift between that year. And that's where we kind of have to evaluate, like you're saying, you know, are the demands curricularly too much? Are the demands socially too much? Right. 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 Yeah. So I hope I hope I've answered giving a little bit more of a takeaway there for you. Yes. Yes. There and there's so much. I feel like I could talk to you for hours and hours. I am like, okay, we've been talking a while. I should I know we haven't even that. touched on like our big like talk today. I'm I so know. But it's like it's so good. So we will okay. definitely have to have you back to talk about more things. But one thing I definitely want to talk about um before you go, because we've talked about about it, but we haven't really explained what it is, is the lagging skills. Oh, the lagging skills. <laughs> so the lagging skills is a term coined by uh, Dr. Ross Green. So if your audience members don't know who that is, I think he's a pretty neat guy. He's a bit quirky, but he's pretty neat. Uh, he's a psychologist out of the States. Uh, Living in Balance is his website. It's a nonprofit. And he talks about, he's written the book, he's written many books, most well-known one is The Explosive Child. And he talks about uh, this idea of collaborative-based problem solving, but in order to understand how to use collaborative-based problem solving, we first need to recognize two things. And so one is the demands the environment is placing on a child in a given moment that results in that sort of complex or eruptive behavior, like something's being asked of that child in the moment that they can't and they can't meet. And then this idea of the lagging skills are those things. So if I go back to my tree, I'm looking on my on my computer here, our expectations. That's where the lagging skills kind of fall in, which is what are those um, expected skills a child should have? that they don't. And so like I pulled up, he has a really great checklist and you know, it's not the end all be all checklist. I think you could do a deep dive into lagging skills for social skills, lagging skills for literacy, right? Like I think any domain of learning in a human being could have lagging skills. Um, Ross Green's lagging skills are things like, and I'm just referencing his exact list, maintaining focus, like a kid's ability to maintain focus, sensory uh, processing difficulties, motor difficulties, uh, difficulty expressing concerns, needs, and wants, right? Like I've already talked about that. Um, can they problem solve? So essentially, where's their prefrontal cortex ability at? Can they, do they have perspective taking? Can they read social nuances? Do they um, read nonverbals? Can they um, understand the ramifications of their behavior 
and, and how it's perceived by others, right? Can they um, shift to original ideas or plans and solutions? Like his lagging skills, I could go on and on and on, but it's an inventory of skills that I actually think very much mirrors executive function checklists, right? So when we do an executive function checklist, we're looking at a child's ability to um, control their impulses, so um, emotional regulation, metacognition, well, in the China shop kid, right? They come into a space, but they don't read the room. <laughs> they just read what they need. Um, initiating tasks, like sustaining task focus, um, you know, realizing how easy or hard a task is going to be like the list is just quite long but I, I think for me lagging skills are really important it's, it's you know whether you like the term or not it really just speaks to the idea of there are likely skills right when when the environment is asking something of a child and they can't meet that need there's usually some skills that that are um, underdeveloped not fully met yet or achieved, right? Or lagging. So I guess it's just sort of how do you want to use the language around it? But does that help answer and explain that? Yes. And then like, you know, I keep on, I want to talk about that a whole bunch, but I'm going to have to yeah. stop as um, I wanted to also just define a couple of things. And I think we're just going to have to have you come back so that we can have a part two and go to. a little more depth on. on some of this. Yeah. Can you just kind of give an explanation of what ODD um, and PDA are? Oh, sure. And sure. and and maybe just a little bit about how parents might have to approach things differently for those kids. Okay, I can. Can we get rid of the picture? Yeah. <laughs> um, okay. So I'm not uh, mindful of, of the, this is its own conversation, but I've mentioned a couple of times here just about neurodivergent children. Um, so PDA, I'll, I'll kind of start with PDA first because I'll talk less about it, but PDA, otherwise known as pathological de demand avoidance is a newer term in the research literature. And really most of the research is coming out of the UK about that. That's where they seem to be doing a lot of the research here in North America. Um, there are some psychologists or developmental pediatricians who believe it does exist. There are others who don't. So um, it's often used within the realm of autism. So children with an autism spectrum disorder diagnosis where they are experiencing demand avoidance that's quite complex. Um, if you listen to autistics, so adults who say they have PDA, they will describe it as an innate, um, in a, I know I need to, but I can't, right? So children in school, if you adhere to the idea of PDA, they might be children who have autism, but it doesn't matter how many sticker charts or consequence strategies or times you sit down and look at the roots of the tree, they are avoiding really following the demands of others, right? They, it, it's often rooted in the sense of anxiety. Like, so anxiety, we know it's there, but we, it's like, you can't help yourself. So, um, it's an innate anxiety-driven need for control, right? Like I, I, I can't do what you're asking me to do and I need to do this instead. Um, it is not recognized on the DSM 
diagnostic criteria, right? So is that's the tool used to for um, the diagnoses we're talking about today. But some families have found it helps explain their child. Right. right. So it's it's there's lots out there in the UK. There's websites dedicated, but there is some research emerging around it. And I could like talk about it more in depth. I come back and do we, that. Yeah, we'll have to come back. But yeah, because it's like got, got me going in so many directions. Oh, right. I just got um, me going. <laughs> go there part, the first thing that comes to mind that I that I have to wonder is, is it or could it be a like conditioned response of so often being told if you do this, then you get this. If you do this, then you get this until the kid is like, I'm not doing anything you ever say because you're always trying to control me. Right. And you have since I was two years old and with all of, um, you know, some of the, the very token board kind of issues of just very trying to control the behavior instead of understanding the child. Like, I can, yeah, I can tell you that I work with some children who have had psychologists put that term on their assessment report. So I don't diagnose. So but I'll take into consideration those terms when they're in the diagnostic reports. And these are not typically kids who have a long history of that kind of. Okay. Um, these are kids where truly they do require, and I'm usually I'm meeting them in schools where schools are like, they're, I, what do we do? So, um, that's a, it's a longer conversation. I feel like if we start to unpack I know. I just want to like talk to you forever. Okay. No, I, but I can't, like, I'm happy to talk about this just a bit more and I can, you know, preface some research for if that's of interest to your audience, just for people to know and understand, but there is whether it's PDA or oppositional defiance. Okay. So talk about that one, explain that one a little bit. ODD, right? So, um, 40% of children with ADHD, the research seems to support these days, um, also have an ODD, oppositional defiance disorder diagnosis. So it's quite prevalent. And again, these are kids, this is not a conditioned, you know, nature nurture situation. These are children who require a different subset of parenting and education approaches. Um, we really have to focus on supporting alternative modalities of communication, right? These are explosive children. So, hey, if you flip a desk and you don't have to do the worksheet, I'm not going to token economy you into doing a worksheet, or I'm going to teach you a safer way to not have to do a worksheet. And I'm going to honor you when you use that safer way. I'm going to give you a lot more choice in your day. I'm going to focus a lot less on direct demand driven instruction. So, you know, you think about authoritative, uh, not dip diplomatic, I think it's used, uh, gentle parenting, use the term you like. <laughs> I, I, I'm sure I'm gonna use the term someone's not good. <laughs> Essentially, it's, connection, attachment, but boundary setting, right? Like we're empathetic, but we're setting boundaries. Um, children with that ODD profile, um, they need a more in-depth approach. It's not just boundaries with them, right? Like hard no's are an invitation to non-compliance. Hard no's can result in, in um, 
more explosions. A lot of those kids in adolescence, I'll use, I'll work with schools. So if they're disruptive in schools, I'll ask schools for their code of conducts. Frame behavior around laws, not rules. Rules are meant to be bent or broken. They mm -hmm. really are. We teach that without realizing that we teach kids, ah, you know, you're supposed to cross at the crosswalk, but let's like break the rule today and cross in the middle. Or ah, we're not supposed to have dessert during the week, but we'll break that rule tonight, sweetie, right? So we, in without realizing that we break rules, right? How many times have you broken a rule with your kids? Come on, how many times? I don't know. I, I'm trying to think about that. Cause like, I mean, my kids are so young and I, most of the rules I break are behind their back. Well, see, but you're breaking them. <laughs> but do you maybe sometimes like read an extra story because you're just loving that moment so much? Well, that's true. Last night I said one story, we got three. So see, right? <laughs> we do it. That's a rule. Because I love it so much that right? I have a hard time like. But we do it. Okay, and I don't seem quite as tired as I thought. So let's go make <laughs> three. But that's okay. That's, that's, that's what that's we're true. supposed to do. But yeah. if you're having a hard time, um, children with conduct, conduct disorders and ODD, you know, they, they really need things framed in laws, right? Like you don't ever steal. Like that's just against the law. So um, in schools, I'll use code of conducts. I don't know in America, that's what we call them in, in Canada. I don't know. Like you must have like, they're not called school rules. There's like a mandated. Well, I mean, the the elementary they usually just say like school rules or like a framework um they might but i feel like at the the older levels like middle school they might they might use that same term i'm not sure yeah but the principles usually yeah. have like these are you know fundamentals right right um and so that's the framework we use because that resonates in life right like those are laws and we try and use different language and so and then in parenting, there's a whole, we want to support attachment and connection, but we fundamentally know that these are children who are experiencing um, distrust with others socially. And that's not because um, one, a parent broke that trust, right? Like I always like to let people know this isn't because you parented incorrectly. Um, this is, but these are things going on. Um, they might have poor self-worth they might have you know physical ailments like sleep deprivation nutrition can sometimes play into this they may require most of the time they do require some modality of therapy or coping techniques this isn't just falling on parents these children have to learn here we go again lagging skills kids need to learn skills to cope when things are hard when you have to follow the rules right because eventually you have to follow the rules Right. Well, you do. But like I have a kindergartner right now who will going into grade one, who spent much of the year not in the classroom because our goal this year was a relaxed, engaged, calm child. And so that meant that um, he had uh, urges that sometimes need, if we said no occupational therapy is not till two o'clock, he's like, no, it's, it's now. And you could tell him till you're blue in the face, but he needed to physically see that, that there was another child with the OT. And then he would be okay. So that's, that's what I mean by like, you have to think outside of the box with how we um, support or parent these kinds of children, because you can't just be like hard no with these kinds of kids. That's just going to be met with a lot more uh, eruption, right? Um, ADHD kids, you know, they do require their own subset of skills um, that do need to have heavy boundaries and um, sometimes some consequences and frameworks for motivation to help with impulse control, right? Because these are kids that 
aren't, it's not, they want to. <laughs> These are not innately bad kids. These are kids who really want to, but neurologically are struggling. And yeah. so sometimes they need the extrinsic world to help shape them. Um, and that's not a bad thing if it's done effectively and well. And I'm not, we're not animal training. We're helping children who are saying to us, I can't do this on my own. I want to be that person my parent wants me to be, that the teacher wants me to be. But when I fail enough times, and I use this a lot, and so maybe this is a great way to sort of end, when kids fail enough at trying to be right, they become the best bad and the best wrong kids you've ever met. Because if I try to be social and I fail, if I try to follow the classroom rules and I met not with the expected outcomes I was hoping for, I can predictably know the outcome when I do things the wrong way. Yeah. Adults are predictable. We are predictable when kids do the wrong way, right? There aren't enough of us that are like, buddy, that was hard, man. I'm sorry that that happened for you. Right. right. How many times do as an adult say to a kid, the adults failed you? Yeah deep, right? But like important stuff. So um, a lot of the amazing, beautiful humans I meet when I'm bridging, I'm really helping people understand that they've become the best bad they can be. And we need to go back to the roots because they don't have the, the worth, right? Um, the, the social trust, the self-compassion, it's not there because they've yeah. failed enough. They've been told that they aren't good enough, smart enough, can't do it, shouldn't do it, right? A lot of ableist stuff going on there, so. Yeah, yeah. I, just don't, I don't want to end on a depressing note. It's, like, <laughs> it's an invitation to come back. Right, right. Yes, yes. So um, until we have you back, let people know how they can get in touch with you, find out more about you. Um, what, do you what do you have that people can follow you or any of that? Oh, okay. I have a website. So it's just michelleshulvock.com. And then I have um, a Facebook. I always, isn't this so bad? I'm like looking on my phone for what my Instagram handle is. I'm so not a tech person. Uh, I have an Instagram account. That is definitely my passion. It's where I post a lot of stuff. So it's Michelle Shulvock Consulting. That's Instagram. Facebook that attaches to that. Um, if you're in Canada, I do a lot of pro bono work for Mamas for Mamas, which is an organization that provides support to Mamas. And so we have private Facebook groups and I do um, bi-weekly um, while you're packing and making your lunches during the school year. We have different topics that the Mamas pick and we talk about. And um, yeah, so I do a little bit of all that and I do consulting work for families as well. But that's, if you just wanna like follow along and hear me share my spiel, I like to think I'm, I'm a different kind of behavior analyst. <laughs> yes. Yes. Not a bad thing. Which is why I was very excited to have you on because Aww. there's too much of a more traditional. Um, so yeah. I was very excited okay. to have you. <laughs> yeah. And thank you. I feel like I chatted a lot more than like. I wanted to keep going. Okay. So thank you so much for all of it. And we will definitely have to have you back for a part two so that we can go a little deeper into the stuff that we didn't get to yet. I would love that. Thank you so much. Thank you so much.